You know something? You know something? If you had told us one year ago that we were going to get modal double-faced cards, we would have given anything for that. And you know something? You know something? Not only are we going to Umara Skyfalls, Tom Harkin, we're going to Skyclave Basilica, and Aquum Teeth, and Balaged Sanctuary, and Colony Territory, and Sejiri Glacier, Balakut Stone Forge, and Spikefield Cave, and Zoff Blood Bog, and we're going to Song Mad Ruins, and McKindy Mesas, and, and Kabira Plateau, and, and Kazul's Cliffs. And then we're going to Amiria Shattered Skyclave. To take back the White House! Yeah! Woo! Spoiler season, Anthony. Oh my god. Ooh, spoiler so season. So exciting. Best time of, the, times of the year. Ooh, the best. So good. I just love looking at new magic cards. It just gives such... Such texture to the week to have new magic cards popping up all over the place. I think Wizards does a really good job with their spoiler season deal, where they give all these different community members different preview cards that come out over the course of, like, two weeks. I think it's really smart. I'm, I'm, I'm into that. Yeah. Anyway, we don't have a preview card yet, Anthony, but you're listening to Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, Color Pie Defender Maddox. Have I used that name before, Anthony? I don't think so. Because it's, it's one that I would like to use for you often. It, it is a, a, big, a big trait of yours. I think about it often. And we have a very important color pie judgment we need from you. Because I know this is very important to you. And so I want to know what you think of Feed the Swarm. Do we have to? Yes, we have to. Is this really necessary? We have to. And we're going to get it out of the way. And then we're just going to move on with the rest of the episode. Feed well, the Swarm, you know what? what do you the, think? The thing is, is it's just not up to me. The, the pie has changed out from beneath me. And I can't control that. It's a whole new pie. But you can have an opinion about it, Anthony. Like, do you think this is a good color pie change? Do you think this is a bad color pie change? Do you think that, as I've seen some other people posting this week, that the color pie no longer exists, basically, and it's basically been banned from the game? <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. Uh, I'm honestly fairly neutral. So, I mean, the, the card in question, Feed the Swarm, is basically just a, a targeted enchantment removal in black, which is not something we have seen before. And I, I know this is something that has sort of been in the works for a while. They've introduced a couple, like, sort of, enchantment edict effects and make your opponent sacrifice some of their enchantments yep. so it's it's been something that is has been on the horizon basically from what i understand about the design process they were like well we have all these different colors of these limitations this particular limitation isn't actually adding that much interest um and it had sort of like overstayed its uh, its welcome i guess for a while specifically because they they make a lot of these sort of like packed with the devil uh type enchantments where you cast an enchantment and it does like some good things and then some very bad things to you so they don't really want to negate all those cards by giving black uh, a way to just destroy them outright so yeah i mean I, I i always would advocate for making the colors as different as possible to add as much variety to the gameplay and as much like symmetrical or, or asymmetry that's still in balance so i'm not crazy about it but also i see why this is a sort of fine space for them to go in I think this is great. I, I, I'm also a big oh, wow. color pie defender. I'm also a big color pie defender. You know, I think it is essential to the game. And honestly, one of the most interesting things about the game, period. Like, as we've mentioned briefly, I have these monocolored starter decks that I've designed for teaching people how to play Magic. And part of the reason I like to teach people that way is that I think starting with a monocolored deck is by far the best thing to do because, A, you don't have to worry about non-basic lands, a whole category of cards you don't have to bother explaining or talking about. It's just your deck only has mountains in it or whatever. Um, but B... 
I tried very hard to make each of those sort of decks embody certain aspects of the colors so that even a brand new player to the game immediately gets a sense of like what these colors do. And I think it provides a lot of depth and importance to the game. So I, I'm a huge defender of the color pie. I don't think we should just give, you know, white, uncomplicated card draw and, you know, whatever. But I think that the like color pie barrier of just this color can't interact with this other card type at all is like one of the worst manifestations of the color pie. And I'm glad to see any of those go away, basically. Like, huh. Like, if you look at how, I mean, creatures are, like, an essential part of the game and have been since its, its, its invention, right? And so there's no color that can't interact with creatures at all, right? I mean, you know, blue has counter spells and bounce spells. You know, black and red have, like, actual straight-up removal. White usually has very close to unconditional removal or, like, you know, it can removal that could possibly be undone or whatever. Green gets fight spells, so you can kill a creature as long as you have a bigger creature. Like, there's a different approach to the problem for each color as opposed to just saying, like, you know what? Uh, you know, red can't even has nothing on in, in, in a rules text box that like interacts with creature cards. I just think it's not great for the game to do that. And for the people that are saying like, oh, the color pie doesn't matter anymore. If that were the case, then we would have you know constructed decks that were just using all mono black because now mono black's OP because it can destroy enchantments. And obviously that's not the case, right? Black being unable to destroy enchantments is not what's making people play multicolored decks and constructed or whatever. Uh, it is the, the functional job of the color pie is to keep these things separate so that you are motivated to strike this balance between playing multiple colors to get advantages from all of them and not, but not going so far that you're taxing your mana base and making your deck uncastable. So I, I think this is a great change. I'm happy to see it. And I, I trust the current team at WotC to not, to not take away our color pie, our beautiful, precious pie. Yeah, I mean, I, I would emphasize that one of the important things about the color pie and making all the colors play in distinct ways is the weaknesses. It's not just that different colors have different strengths, but they're also just things that colors can't do. But I think that in this particular case, you know, red can't really deal with enchantments, black can't really deal with artifacts, uh, and so the fact that black also couldn't deal with enchantments just felt like it was a little bit too much of a burden on the color. Yeah, and I would say that, like, any color's strength is every other color's weakness, right? Like, I, I think it's just two, two takes on the same thing. I don't think a weakness That's has fair. to be, like, a total blind spot, I guess. Like, I, I don't think the huge blind spots are particularly useful. It's just like, well, my opponent's playing an enchantment-based deck, so I guess I just can't win now. As opposed to saying, like, my opponent's playing an enchantment-based deck, they are favored or whatever, and I have to, like, think about it. Anyway, I think it's great. Feed the Swarm seems like a good card. I, I wish it was either instant speed or one mana for my own cube. Never enough. It's never enough for cube. Well, That's it's also one mana destroy target creature. Well, it does. I mean, there, we already have Vendetta, which is one mana instant destroy target creature. You lose life equal, non-black creature. You lose life equal to its converted mana cost, which I would very happily be cubing if not for the non-black creature rider, which I still just can't abide. I, I try to avoid that as much as I can. That's a really great point to bring up, though, that the, even though we want to sort of appreciate everything that's great about the game, uh, it is really awesome when we see them actually being a little bit more reflective and say, well, we've just done this forever, like, why would we change it? Um, and and the, when they stopped doing the destroyed non-black creature, I think that was a really good move for the game. So that that's valuable to, to be aware of when they're making these changes. They're not doing it for no reason. Oh, of course not. They're thinking about it a lot. And also, I would say that, like, there's just a lot of change aversion. Like people that are Definitely, that are yeah. mad about this. Like if you sat down from a blank slate and explained this game to somebody that didn't get it, and then you got to the part where you were like, "Oh, and by the way, like black can't destroy enchantments." It's like, why? What? What is the? What value is being imparted to the game by that specific thing? And the answer I don't think is is not very much. So I'm glad to see it happening. And uh, yeah, I'm always glad to see the game changing. I think uh, the game changing is is pretty much always for the best. And Magic is a better game now than it was ten years ago or twenty years ago or whatever. So. 
I embrace the change, Blasphemy. Anthony. All right, so the big question is then, should I put Feed the Swarm into my mono black cube? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, did I you feel like still... part of the design consideration was that enchantments are non-interactable, therefore I will, you know, include ones that would otherwise maybe be suspect because I know you can't remove them? That was definitely part of the design, but I think that more affected artifacts and enchantments. So I, I think the bigger reason why I would be apprehensive at this point is just because the effect is so rare, it would feel like very high variance. So you could say, well, this effect is almost certainly never going to be interacted with, except if my card, my opponent has like one of these literal two cards that can interact with it. So I feel like if I design the cube, you know, three years from now, when we have uh, a dozen sort of interchangeable effects, then I would be much more likely to be totally comfortable just putting it in there. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And there is a lot of value, I think, to, you know, not having a bunch of totally random, like, one of hosers. I guess I feel like the destroying an enchantment is just right, not exactly. that huge of a hose, you know? It's like, if occasional upside on what is otherwise a very reasonable removal spell, that's what it seems like. We've got a lot of good removal in this set so far. True. All right, uh, so this episode, I, I think we're going to talk a lot about these modal double face cards. We talked very briefly about them the day that we discovered they were a thing, but... We've had a lot more spoilers come out and a lot more time to sort of simmer on this idea. And I mean, frankly, these are the things I'm just most excited about, about this new set. And uh, I've been talking a lot about on the Discord and just they are kind of consuming my my brain space. I'm not sure about you. So I want to get into that a little bit. And then we have some other topics here we might get into. But uh, that's where we're headed after we do our pack one, pick one, which we, of course, do every week from a listener submitted cube. And this week we are doing a cube submitted by listener Tristan, a.k.a. Nomad. And this is an unpowered budget cube that I believe at some point was branched off from Sully Singleton's board game cube. So we had actually talked about budget-limited cubes here before, Anthony, but it's obviously an important consideration for a lot of players out there. A lot of people, you know, are not playing cards with big price tags and don't have the sort of resources to dump whatever they want into their cube. And so uh, it's an interesting design space to play with that I think leads interesting places to cards you might not normally run. So you want to uh, read That's these cards to us? All right. Wow. Well, I've got to say, even though this is a budget cube, it's not necessarily an unpowerful cube. First card out of the gate is Simic Signet. Signets are great. We haven't actually had a Signet conversation on the show before. This is, uh, I feel like this is one of those topics that all cube designers weigh in on at some point. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very important design consideration. Like, are you going to run Signets? Are you going to include them? And, uh, and the, the reason is because just giving giving any deck access to jump from you know, two to four mana in, in one turn uh, is, a, is a huge sort of tempo swing that really any any deck is kind of happy to take, except kind of aggro. I mean, most aggro decks don't want to spend a card on just getting additional mana, but any mid-ranger control decks. So uh, yeah, so far I'm on Simic Signet, and I'm very happy about it. I'm on Signet, and I'm sad about it. Next up, uh, another cool card uh, from Jumpstart, Witch of the Moors. This one I don't know. you have to read it to me. Okay, so this is the 5-mana 4-4 with Death Touch. But at the beginning of your end step, if you gain life this turn, each opponent sacrifices a creature, uh, and you return a creature from your graveyard to your hand. So, I mean, the illustration for this card is is amazing. It's sort of the evolution of the uh, Tempting Witch from Eldraine, where all those little hands in its chest have emerged with all kinds of trinkets. Uh, And I I think the card is quite strong. Um, This this definitely seems like a good life gain payoff. I'm not going to start on it over a Signet, though. Fair enough. Uh, All right, so next card is Mental Note. One mana, uh, mill two cards, draw a card. Yeah, that is basically the almost functional copy of Thought Scour. Thought Scour, you can target a player, and Mental Note is just always you. Yeah, I bet cantrips are good. Most people, I don't see putting this in cubes unless they are explicitly doing some conscious graveyard synergies. I mean, I, I think arguably it's 
playable in most cubes because even if you're not doing conscious graveyard strategies you probably have a couple delve cards or something like just incidental value and cantrips are good but uh but yeah i still signet i mean i i think it's gonna be hard to take me off signet i'm gonna go ahead and just uh you know say that this will probably be my pick through most of the pack let's see if we can unseat it though all right next up is pristine talisman three mana tap for a generic gain of life right yep two mana rocks are better than three mana rocks in general so i'm gonna stick with the two mana one it is interesting looking at just these four picks. It does seem like there's a little bit of a theme in that we have our Witch of the Moors, and we have something that both mills cards and something that gains life. So without being really familiar with, with the cube, uh, I, I already feel like I'm getting some of the themes, which is pretty cool. Yeah, next so far up we it is have, very, very uh, consistent. Uh, next up, we have Porcelain Legionnaire. Does Oof. this unseat the Signet for you? So this gets into an interesting question of, like, am I drafting this pack blind? Or am I looking at the list? The actual fact of the matter is I'm looking at this list here. I happen to be. If I was blind coming to this pack, I would definitely be on Signet. If I knew the cube and knew that aggro was very consistently performing well, I think there's a very strong argument that starting on Legionnaire is just as good, if not better. From looking at this list, I, I, I'm going to stick with the Signet, I think. Um, this is a 420-card cube, so it's bigger than a 360. And uh, there certainly are you know, quite a bit of one-drops and quite a bit of aggro support, but just from... The density of those things and the fact that we're, you know, playing budget, so we're probably going to be avoiding some of the most, like, you know, peak cards. I, I think I'm probably going to be trying to do something a little more value than tempo-oriented. I think I'm in exactly the same spot. Uh, so next up, I don't think this is going to do it for you either. Hanged Executioner. No, I think the card's cool, but I'm not going to take it here. All right, how about Neutralize? Cool, valuable card as well, but yeah, also not going to take that. I expect both those cards to be, like, mid-pack cards. Yeah, I agree. Uh, next up is Burning of... You're going to have to help me with this. I've heard it as Burning of Xingye, but I do not know if that is actually true. It's just what I've heard other streamers say. So, Well, unfortunately, you don't have to say it. You just need to put it on the table end point. My goal is to uh, take the Signet and then wheel Burning. That's my plan currently. That sounds like a solid plan. Burning is, uh, is the Geist. functional duplicate of Wildfire, for those that are not familiar. Uh, it is the Wildfire so. from the starter decks portal three kingdoms rather portal three kingdoms we have a geist honored monk that is the white five drop right correct yeah five mana for a power and toughness is equal to the uh number of creatures you control it's got vigilance and enters the battlefield with two one one white spirits uh with flying so it's five mana for i guess a two two and two more one one flyers so it's As pretty a good value yeah it seems like a perfectly serviceable card but not going to take me off signet how about eliminate destroy Very good a removal small spell, creature but, or planeswalker but yeah still still not gonna gonna pry me off of you gonna pry this signet from my cold dead hand so far <laughs> i don't think we're gonna manage to will mer battlesphere do it for you i mean it's a very fun seven drop <laughs> it's probably one of the more fun ways to win the game in most cubes but but no i i expect you know we already have seen a couple of good fives i expect i will get plenty of ways to win the game I don't have to prioritize taking one first. Even though it is colorless, it's seven mana, which means you have to... You are not taking an open pick because it is colorless. You are basically saying, I'm going to close myself off to all decks that can't cast seven drops, which is many decks. So I'll start with the ramp and get the, the big payoffs later. Yeah. Sram's Expertise is our next card. So this is a four mana, make three servos, and you can cast a three CMC or less card from your hand. 
this expertise cycle was an interesting one for Cube. I, I when I first saw them, I thought they were going to be very potent because you know, in some ways, Ceram's expertise costs a single mana, right? And one mana right. for that effect is great. You know, you can say the same for Baral's expertise or Yeheni's expertise. Um, those cards all seemed very promising on their on their face, but most of them, I mean, they pretty much all played out worse than I expected them to, just because they're none of them are super cheap. Uh, you know, I think the cheapest one is Carry Zev's expertise at four mana. It's a four mana threaten that lets you. No, I think it's still three mana actually, it's, but maybe it's three. It only Maybe it only threatens creatures of a certain size or something. Is there a limitation no, on what it can threaten? I think it just works. It's just it's one red red, I guess, instead of two red. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so that's the cheapest one. But then you get to play a two drop or whatever. Yeah, it's just that the they any card that makes you sequence your hand in anything other than what would be the normally optimal way to sequence your hand usually plays out worse than it looks because you're either you know, spewing off value because you're saying, well, I've got this board wipe in hand, but I'm not going to play my three drop, you know, before I play Yehani's Expertise, whether it could be an artifact or a planeswalker or something. You're like, I'm going to wait to to get this value off of casting Yehani's Expertise, and then you, you know, played off tempo or whatever. Uh, it just, it did, it, the mechanic did not play out super well. And so the card, I think, is fine, but I'm not going to take it here. Carizo's Expertise also lets you steal vehicles. I didn't forget about that part. Right, it does. Interesting. Uh, all right, three more cards. We have uh, Sky Sovereign Console Flagship. This is a much better colorless bomb to start on than mere Battlesphere, in my opinion, which might yeah, be a hot take. But two mana cheaper is a big difference. The, the, the sort of caveat on the the big Skyboat is that it's not going to be great to control that because if you can't crew it, you can't crew it. There was a time where I used to think that Skyboat was, you know, the best green five drop in cube. <laughs> and actually, honestly, it still might be. Am I running any fives in my cube right now? I'm, I'm running a couple. I have, uh, like, the Deep Forest Harmony and stuff. So it's really like a kind of a mid-rangey card, but a very, very good mid-rangey card. But still not going to take me off Signet. Maybe I'll wheel that. I'm going to wheel either that or Burning, surely. I think that would be not unlikely. Next card is Impulse. Yeah, not going to take me off of old Signet. And last but not least, Rurikthar the Unbowed. This is a card I have been curious to try in cube because it... I really, I think what, what keeps it from being viable is the any, lack of any kind of, like, trample. It's a 6-6 it's with Vigilance and Reach that attacks every turn at Babel, and then if your opponent casts a non-creature spell, it domes them for 6, which is a lot. Actually, it counts you, well, too. Well, I think, yeah, it counts you as well. So I think in your cube specifically, the problem would be a lot of your threats in, like, a mid-range red-green deck or planeswalkers. Yeah, that is true. It would it would hit you on your own planeswalkers. They would all come down before this thing, you know, was played, because none of them cost six mana or more. So, theoretically, this could be, like, your curve topper. But, um, yeah, and then basically, like, always dealing at least six to your opponent if they have a removal spell is seems good. But, uh but yeah, again, six mana. I'm going to wheel one of these big five or six mana spells, though, and I'll be very happy to already have a Signet in my deck when I wheel them. Yeah, uh, it's it's really hard not to take the Signet here. Um, I think that if I'm going to make my hot take, I really don't like Signets um, for a couple reasons. One of them just being that they are a symmetrical cycle that a lot of people include the entire cycle of all ten in their cubes. And again, like if people enjoy that, people should play what they enjoy. But for the kind of draft experience I like, this opportunity to just say, like, well, whatever colors I'm drafting, I always get this access to the signets. Just takes away from that exact same, like, asymmetry of the color pie that I really enjoy. And I think it also, they are just, like, so potent, costing just two and fixing your mana so well, that if you're doing any kind of lower-powered cube and you're including the signets, it just enables the sort of, like, five-color pile problems so, so easily. 
Yeah, I, I started, my cube initially had all 10 signets in there, and then I cut all of them because I came to a similar conclusion, and I was like, you know, I just I want aggro to be better, and I don't want every single deck to be sort of kind of encroaching on the space that green should have an advantage in. And then what I ended up right. doing eventually was adding back in some of them. So I have a, a selection of two-mana rocks that can produce basically some subset of blue. Looking at this list, this person is not, Tristan here is not playing all 10. Um, they're playing, interestingly, kind of the opposite of what I'm playing. They're playing all of the green-based signets and none of nice. the, I'm sorry, and yeah, none of the non-green-based signets. So they're basically, I, I mean, truly I think of a signet is basically a colorless card. Uh, you know, the reason I chose to include the blue ones is just because I was like, well, I'm going to include, you know, four to six of these. I might as well include the ones I think are the best colors that want this effect the most. But truly, like, if I included, you know, Boros Signet or Selesnia Signet, those decks would be only 2% less happy to play those cards instead. So, really, they're colorless cards. And yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think they, they are one of the biggest offenders of that sort of, you know, five-color good stuff deck, if it, if it is viable in your environment. It's often because of Signets. And I, I think, um, you know, breaking cycles, I think, is, is a, a, was kind of a level-up moment for me very early in my cube design days, because, you know... People oftentimes approach a cube like you're designing a set because that's the only precedence we have for designing any kind of magic product. You think about, you know, a constructed set and how it's been designed for, for drafting. And, you know, cycles are present in those sets. And what they do is they, like, they establish a pattern that players can then learn and you get the satisfaction of seeing that pattern completed. And it reduces cognitive load a little bit because you can sort of shortcut things and say, oh, this is just the this version of that effect or whatever. But... Um, but in cube, it so oftentimes like tramples over what would otherwise be the right balance of effects for an environment. Like ten two mana rocks at a three hundred sixty card cube is just so many two mana rocks. It's a lot. Uh, having the full cycle just really kind of hems you in there. It's it's not that the individual signet is so good. I mean it is, but usually the problem with signets is that people have all ten of them, and having ten in the environment is a surefire way to just let people play signets and, you know, anything that costs four or five mana that is good in any color and kind of trample all the decks that have, have strategy. But, but yeah, I don't think that's happening here because we only have a few signets. So I'm happy to have gotten one of them. Uh, first pick. Yeah, it seems like a strong place to start. I would, um, my second pick here is, I think, definitely the Legionnaire, though. I'm not sure if that's your second pick as well. It's close for me. Uh, I'm actually really tempted by Witch of the Moors, just because even just looking at this one pack, it seems really supported, and it's a card I've never played with before, and it seems like it has a very high ceiling. I, I don't think that would be the correct choice, but if I was drafting with my heart, that's where I'd be. That's one of the best things about Cube. You can do whatever you want. Try Test out a new hypothesis every time you sit down to the table, because usually we're drafting with no stakes, which is a, which is a nice <laughs> part of our casual format. All right. Thank you so much, Tristan slash Nomad, for sending in your cube list. If you would like to be like Tristan and have us talk about your cube on Lucky Paper Radio, you can email a link to mail at luckypaper.co and include your name and your pronouns, and we will add it to our spreadsheet and do it on the air sometime. All right, Anthony, I'm just itching to talk about model double face cards. I'm I'm amped about these. First, I just have to say... Gosh, that that white mythic. Ooh, it's so good, Anthony. It's like, really that's the one that stands out to you. Are you surprised? I'm surprised. Which one did you think was going to stand out to me? Uh, uh, anything but just like a giant sorcery that makes a bunch of angels. Well, so here's the thing. Like, we've. I like 
I like flexible spells. I like scalable spells. I like cheap spells. I like being able to cast lots of things in the same turn. I like optimizing for decision points for my players. So yes, normally none of those I, things sound like casting a what eight mana, seven mana sorcery, sorcery? seven mana sorcery, four white 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 for the sorcery side. Yeah, none of these things seem like I would be the person that would like to pay four white 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 to make two four four angels, but. The beauty of these cards, which is the same thing as the beauty of like cycling, for example, or the cheap cycling cards, is that they allow you to put cards in your deck that I would never in a billion years put in my deck, right? Like if I just included the spell side of this in my cube, I would never put it in any deck ever. I mean, ever. I would, I would rather run another land probably. I'd rather go up to like 18 lands in my control deck than run a seven mana sorcery. It just uh, is not going to get there. So... The beauty of this is that I get to put it in my deck at basically no cost. You know, I mean, the the three man. Also, here's the other thing I love about this cycle. I love that the lands deal damage to you because I mm-hmm. love trading life as a resource. So these these, these are like tech chicking so many boxes for me, where they're letting me, they give me modal cards, so let me pay life as a resource. They're not coming in tapped, which I I loathe, which is what's keeping me from being over the moon about a lot of these other cards. Is that tapped lands really bum me out? And on top of that, they let me embrace the like little bit of my Timmy side, which just occasionally likes to cast a giant spell. And uh, it's just, I love it. I, I have not had such a strong emotional reaction to a card in a long time. And that, that sort of white, that white mythic. Uh, let's actually look up the name for it. Emeria the, the Shattered Skyclave. Emeria's Call. Emeria's Call and uh, Shattered Skyclave, yeah, are the ones we're, we're talking about. So, yeah, that wow. card. I mean, I, me I so couldn't excited. be more shocked. I'm surprised you're shocked, but yeah, I mean, I, I get how you, I wouldn't like a seven mana sorcery, but the whole point is it's not. It's a land that sometimes is a seven mana sorcery. I think that one's also incredible on power level. Like, what do you think about it, Anthony? Uh, I mean, I think it's obviously an extremely strong card, and you might say, like, well, it's just as a sorcery would be a little bit underwhelming, but the, the flexibility is just unbelievable. And clearly they've also, like, by allowing it to come into play untapped to the cost is definitely not to try and make these more um, constructed viable compared to a lot of the co- commons that are more targeted at limited. But it doesn't spark joy for me in the same way it does for you. Interesting. I had, I mean, I had a big, I had an experience, let's say, with Boon of the Wishgiver, which is that, you know, that sorcery from Ikoria, which is just six mana, draw four cards, and it has cycling for generic mana, which is that when it was first spoiled, I was like, eh. I mean, I was looking, I was very, I was considering every generic cycling one card, because I do think that effect is very powerful, and I'm very high on cantrips, and I'm very happy to just put cyclers in my deck, but I was like, when is my control deck ever going to want to spend six mana at sorcery speed to not affect the board? Like, it seems like even if I have six mana, I would rather just cycle it and hold up counter magic or removal or whatever. I really thought it would basically never get cast. I think I even estimated at some point, like, just under 5% of the times in which you draw it, are you going to be able to cast it? And the reality from playing with it is that you get to cast it way more than I thought. Just way, way more. It is so much more relevant than I thought it would be to have a six mana draw four cards in your deck at the cost of not having to put a six mana draw four cards in your deck. And so I think it's my extremely positive experience with that that has me so excited about Emeria's, uh, God. Emeria's Call. Emeria's Call. Because, you know, you're going to get to cast a seven mana sorcery in your, like, white aggro deck that has 14 lands sometimes. Like, that's just great. It's so yeah. good. Could be better. Could make, you know, 20 Pegasuses. 
I will say, if I'm going to get really nitpicky, I'm a little annoyed the Angels don't have Vigilance. I mean, how much better would the car be if the Angels had Vigilance? Would it be that much better? Probably not that much better. And it would just mean I would have to have one less token for the cube, and it'd be like Sarah Angels. It would just be a little better if it was that. But what do you think? This token space pollution is really, is really what's going to bring magic to its knees. Token space pollution is a real problem for cube designers, Anthony. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, I'm really excited about that card. I like the red one quite a bit as well. The blue one, which just got spoiled like an hour ago, I'm not quite as high on. I'm probably still going to be testing, but it doesn't it doesn't spark the joy, and I'm not like over the moon about it. I actually kind of expected. I feel like recently in sets when we have like a splashy mythic cycle, I feel like the blue one is usually less powerful, which is probably important that it be less powerful because uh, of blue's ability to abuse you know broken mythics. But yeah, the blue one seems a little bit. A little bit less exciting to me, and uh, I'm really excited to see what the green and, and black ones have in store. These are just such exciting cards. But talking about these and the other modal double face cards in this set has been very interesting. So we compared them in our sort of you know bonus episode talking about the announcement of Zendikar Rising to mostly the cycling one cards, and our sort of justification was that like you know if you are cycling this away to draw a land and then you play that land for turn then, you know, you tapped one land, and you ended up with, you know, a tapped land in play, and, you know, up a card, which is what you would have been if you had just, you know, played this as a, as a tapped land or whatever. So, in that sense, they are somewhat similar. It's also, like, a mechanic that's easy to compare it to, because you can slap cycling on any spell, and you have to make the spell a little bit overcosted, just like you have to, you can slap a land on the back of any spell, but you have to make the spell a little overcosted. So, that was an interesting comparison. But I have a list here, Anthony, of other possible comparisons to these model double face cards to try and like evaluate them and i'm curious to talk through them with you and see how you where you come down on them the first one is just man lands right the lands you can pay to turn into a creature and i thought of this one specifically when one of the first modal double face cards that was spoiled was that blue four three flyer for five right let's see where is that mr wave rider it's Umara Wizard is the one I'm thinking of. So it's a blue 4-3 that can be given flying when you cast an instant or sorcery or wizard spell for five mana. And then on the back, it's a tapped land. And some people in the cube community specifically are very high on this card and are like, this is incredible. It's like a bomb that, that you wouldn't play this in every deck is a huge mistake. And I was like, uh, I don't know. It doesn't like, it doesn't seem great to me. And so I was just comparing this specifically to Celestial Colonnade, which is a very good mana land. And for, for a second, let's put aside the fact that Colonnade requires two covers of you know mana to activate, because that's obviously its own consideration. But you know, here you can either have a tapped land, the taps for blue, or late in the game, you can have a five mana four three. And the people that are arguing that this is very good are basically making the argument that this spell is very close to free to put in your deck. You put it in a land slot, you're running a tapped land now, which is a cost, but you know, we run tap lands for other reasons, so like we're happy to have our triumphs in our deck or whatever. A lot of people still run just regular tap lands for their dual lands, so you know we're happy to have tap lands for a benefit. And the benefit of being able to cast your multicolored spells is worth it for many people. And here, the benefit of you draw this in a late game and it's just a guaranteed you know four three with occasionally with flying is like very high value. And just you know the ability to occasionally have a five mana four three when it's the right time to have it is just you know worth a lot. The reason I think it's so interesting to compare to Celestial Colonnade is because Celestial Colonnade is almost exactly the same, right? It's tap land. It happens to also fix your mana, but we're putting that aside for now. And then you can pay five mana to turn it into a 4-4 with flying and vigilance, actually. So obviously, this 
does not wear off. The colonnade you have to activate turn over turn if you want to keep activating it. That's a difference for sure. But just comparing Umara Wizard and Celestial Colonnade, I think Celestial Colonnade is the stronger card. I think it's pretty close, but I actually might lean towards the Umara Wizard. Like, obviously, the, the Colonnade is a more powerful creature when you do cast it, but the fact that you or do activate it, but the fact that you only have to pay for it once with the wizard makes a huge difference. Yeah, there's pros and cons, right? Like, in a big picture sense, the way the man lands work, which is, I think, a big advantage over the modal double face cards, is that you get both, right? You get the land, and then later on you get the creature. And here, True. you know, if you are getting Umara Wizard later on, you also didn't have it in play as a land to tap for mana for the first few turns of the game or whatever. So that's a downside. But a big upside of the creature is that, like, you know, it's just always a creature, like you said. You're paying five mana for a 4-3, you always have that. Obviously, that has pros and cons, too. Like, one of the cool advantages of man lands is that they can often dodge sorcery speed removal or board wipes or anything, because you, you know, can turn them on and off when you need to. But yeah, I think it's really close to compare those two cards. And it's worth noting that we're talking about, like, an uncommon mono blue card versus a, like, rare dual land, so... The fact that this is in, in contention and it's like a discussion we're having, I think, is a, a testament to how powerful the mechanic is. But I'm not running Celestial Colonnade in my cube, and I don't think I'm going to test Umara Wizard either. It doesn't. I don't think it's impactful enough to be worth the tapped land and all the sort of other costs surrounding it. I, I find myself revisiting all of these other value lands, though, now that I'm looking at the modal double face cards in this light. So, for example, I, I uh, actually tweeted out on the Lucky Paper Twitter account when this first when this first was spoiled on Tuesday or whatever that I was convinced that this set was going to be the set that got me to finally put Lonely Sandbar in my cube, right? Which hmm. is just the tap blue land you can cycle for blue, and I think it is going to work. <laughs> I think I think I am going to put it in, and the reason why is that Lonely Sandbar I've always thought of as a land, right? Like it's a land and. The value it has is that if you it's a land that if you draw it late, you can just cycle it and, you know, get some more action. And I think what will change it for me is instead framing it as a spell and assuming that in the vast majority of games, I'm going to cycle it unless I desperately need a land, in which case I can always just play it tapped as a blue source. And that makes it much more appealing to me to just assume this is one, man, one blue mana draw card. And if you really need to, you know, you can put it in play as a tap land as like a last resort. That framing and, like, thinking about it in deck construction as, you know, not contributing to my land count, for example, I think makes the card much more appealing. And if you had printed, you know, a modal double face card that was functionally the same as, you know, uh, Lonely Sandbar and just said, one mana draw a card, and then the backside was just coming to play tap, tap for blue, that card would seem quite good to me. And so the fact that I have not tested Lonely Sandbar seems like an indictment of my evaluation of that card. That's fair, but, uh, I mean, with uh, the... Umara Wizard, you, you're always getting an actual spell out of it, even even if it's not a great spell, whereas uh, right. when you cycle Lonely Sandbar, it's, you know, maybe now it's 40% of the land instead of a, a whole land. So I, I think that that comparison is really difficult to make. Yeah, I, I you know, it was the first comparison we made because I think it was, you know, it's close in our memory because Akoria was just a set we dealt with, and, you know, there's a lot of people that were kind of reckoning with the idea of running overcosted inefficient spells in their cube because of the cycling mode being available on it. So it is interesting because it's another mechanic that will get you to play an overcosted inefficient spell. But yeah, I think you're right. Mechanically they're not actually that similar because, you know, a cycling spell draws you lands and spells at the density of whatever lands and spells you included in your deck, as opposed to this, which always gives you the choice. You always have a creature or you always have a land. You're not taking any of that risk of saying like, I'm gonna keep a 
one lander with my generic cycling card and hope to cycle into a land, like you can just say, well, I'll keep this one lander because it's actually a two lander because I have right. this multi double face card, which is a guaranteed land if I want it and doesn't get Thoughtseize so, away. <laughs> what if we take another extreme to this and say, well, what if you just played a, a like constructed deck of only these cards? So you've got, you know, your four of your wizard, you got your four of your whatever this beautiful beast rider is. And we just say, well, all your lands are coming into play tapped. You're playing a turn behind. But if you never want to draw your fifth land, you don't have to. You right. can just. You are literally never mana screwed, and you are literally never mana flooded. And for that cost, I mean, for for that benefit, you are paying f- by having tapped lands and having below rate spells. And how worth it is it? It seems pretty good. There were some people that speculated when this mechanic was first spoiled that felt like it was as broken as companion, and that's what we were going to see. We were going to see decks where nobody was running any lands anymore. They were just running yeah modal double face cards and basically like completely. That was why I think it drew the the comparison to Companion, because taken to its extreme, it does fundamentally change the game of Magic in that it removes a lot of variance that is always present, right? In the same way that always having a card in your opening hand, you know, fundamentally changed the game of Magic in sort of a a very profound way. I think in reality, if you're talking about Standard or whatever, even if you're talking about, like, just block constructed, let's just play constructed with just this set, I, I think the cards are all going to be enough worse that... And you're playing a whole turn off tempo by playing almost all of your lands tapped. We do have the mythic cycle, which you can have come in untapped at the cost of some life. But playing all of your lands tapped, you know, is is a real cost. So the same way that like, you know, I really like cantrips, but obviously you can't just fill a deck with nothing but cantrips, right? Like that deck will also never get mana flooded or mana screwed, but you'll also won't do anything. You'll spend all your time just cycling your cards to make sure you can play lands. So it's uh, it's a it's a funny extreme. And I, the fact that it, we have this new spectrum now, where like that is a theoretical extreme you could be on you could have a, a deck that never gets mana screwed and always has exactly as many lands as it wants is is a new change to the game so it sounds like you're definitely all in on the emiria's call are there any others that you're actually considering putting into your cube oh it was a lot i'm considering i i, I think emiria's call is kind of a slam dunk for me i think the shatter skull smashing the red mythic is also just kind of a slam dunk like I, I'm going to put that in my cube, and I don't expect it to be taken out anytime soon. The other ones I'm interested in, uh, I'm interested in the green regrowth. And forgive me, I'm not going to know all these card names at this point. Uh, I'm sorry, people. But there's a three-mana regrowth that you can also play as a tapped green land. There is, we'll talk about we'll talk about the mana dork in a second. That one, to me, is one of the most interesting yeah. uh, modal double-face cards, because both sides just do exactly the same thing. And it's right. just, do you want it to be a, a land, or do you want it to be a two-mana one-one? So actually, that one I'm not that high on. I, I'm interested in possibly this white removal spell that deals damage to any target equal to the number of creatures you control. Kabira something or other. Uh, so that one isn't as good. Oh, never mind. I thought that one specifically said well, it was uh, counting the number of creatures in your party, but I must be mixing it up. Yeah, it, it's actually weird that it doesn't, but it just cares about the number of creatures you control total. Uh, we're, looking, we're talking about Kabira Takedown now, uh, yeah. which is a, a two-mana instant that deals damage equal number of creatures you control, target creature, planeswalker. That one I'm on the fence about because, you know, I think that effect is great, stable to a land, but that effect is going to be an effect that aggressive decks want the most, mid-range decks are pretty happy with, and control decks don't really want. And that's also like an inverse relationship to the decks that are willing to play a tapped land. So I would not be happy to put that in my aggro deck in a land slot, I don't think, because aggro decks, just really, I just really don't want to tap land <laughs> ever. So there I'd expect to be running it effectively in a spell slot, at, that, at which point it's like a spell slot that mitigates a little bit of mana screw. If you really need to play it as land, you can. But I don't think it earns a spell slot on, on its sort of 
face and just just what the card does in your average aggro deck. So that one I'm a little on the fence about, but I'm considering. There were a couple others. I mean, I think that this is the this is similar to cycling one, where like I'm looking at every card that has it written on it and expecting that uh, there's a very good chance the card is very playable because if you just assume it's a land and you can afford to play a land in your deck that comes into play tapped, then you get to have this late game value and this sort of additional choice all the time. The other, so there's a couple other precedents for these cards, which I thought were interesting that I was thinking about this week. So we talked about mana lands, talked about cycling one. The castles are a pretty interesting comparison, specifically to this new mythic cycle we have here, because they have the option of also coming in untapped if you control the basic land of the appropriate color. What do you think of so the these are, these? are the rare lands from Throne of Eldraine? Yes, so Castle Ardenvale, Castle Embrith, Garenbrig, Loch Dwain, etc., Vantress. One in each color, they all have an activated ability that does something relevant in the late game and produce colored mana, like, like, like this mythic cycle does, and could possibly come in untapped if you are you know, deep in a color. How do you think these compare to the double face cards? I think that's a valuable comparison. I think these seem a little bit stronger. Like the castles are really easy to just put in any deck because um, like you said, there's very little cost because they can usually come into play untapped um, and just give you some options late game. Um, well, I don't know if I would say usually. It really depends on your deck and what your, what your mana base looks like. Specifically, if you're in like a two color deck, you right, right. are hoping to play dual lands earlier to like open up your options of casting more spells you know on time so it's entirely possible that you would have this as your third land or whatever it does not have the correct basic yet so it's like 50 50 i, I don't know we could do some math on that and figure out how likely you were to get that but i i would expect my anticipation would be like half the time they come in untapped but i, I think the thing that changes this is when we we take this uh this mechanic to the extreme and imagine like if you're playing a deck that just doesn't ever have to draw too many lands it seems sort of game altering in a way that the castles are not well i mean to like draw a comparison in theory you could run nothing but castles in your deck i mean you actually wouldn't have quite enough to make a constructed deck because there's not enough of them but you know you could build five color castles and you know in the same way you would never get mana screwed and you could Hmm. just have mana to activate all these abilities all the time and make human creature tokens and do all this stuff obviously well yeah but but all the stuff is scry a bunch draw some cards and lose some life and have mana that you can only spend on creatures it's not except for the white one that actually makes tokens i don't think it's uh actually a win condition right which is something i was going to mention is that the castles are arguably better because you do get the land and the effect which you don't get with the model double face cards you only get one or the other but these effects are all pretty marginal, and they're costed appropriately, right? Like, I mean, you, if you're sticking an activated ability on a land that already taps for colored mana, uh, it's going to have to be significantly overcosted. Here we're looking at four mana for a 1-1, or three mana for a temporary, you know, boost everyone's power, or three mana to draw a card and lose some life, or four mana to, to scry two. These are all very, like, incremental effects. None of them are going to be, like, game-changing. And to your point, you can't build a whole deck full. I mean, you could imagine building a deck full of, like, castles and man lands and nothing but lands that have all these activated abilities, and you could now that theoretically... Again, like, so it's, so it's not actually... I mean, now that we're, like, breaking it down, it's not actually that the idea of having a deck where you never get mana screwed or mana flooded is actually new, right? It's just we're seeing it in a new context with the way these cards are put and this, this technology of modal double face cards. But you could already build a deck with nothing but lands that had activated abilities that could theoretically have lots of win conditions and whatever, but it's just all of those things are overcosted enough that it doesn't, it's not worth it, which I think is probably right. the case with the modal double face cards too, though they don't seem as overcosted as all these abilities on lands seem to me to be, partially because these are all repeatable 
and the spells are obviously one off. And also you don't get both, which is, which is relevant. You gotta choose. Here, the sort of comparison of the castles is interesting in a couple specific places. Like, you know, Castle Ardvale makes a 1-1 for four mana as opposed to the, you know, the white mythic, which makes two 4-4s four for seven mana. Obviously a much it's bigger effect on the game. Pretty different. A very big difference in sort of total impact on the game. It's not this marginal impact, it's a very big impact. Man, the worst thing about the Angels is I know I'm going to draft it exactly one time and I'm going to draw it when I have six lands in play. And I'm just going to be sitting there thinking, well, I could play this as my seventh land, but... It is going to open some interesting design... It's going to open some interesting decision points like that. And I mean, in that situation, unless you have other seven drops in your deck, I think you probably just hold on to it. (laughs) Right, right. But, you know, you're going to draw it when you have five lands and you do have six drops in your deck or whatever, and you have to be like, well, geez, what do I do? I mean, at that point, I guess you just hold it until you draw a six drop and then you play your six line and play it maybe it's not actually that many interesting decisions <laughs> that come up there but um yeah it's gonna be it's, it's gonna be a thing it's gonna be interesting um, one of the closest comparisons i think like direct comparisons to the spell lands is actually the memorial cycle from dominaria so that's a cycle of uncommon lands again one of each color that comes into play tapped taps for a color but has a one-time activated ability that requires you to sacrifice the card. So that's, unlike the castles, which are repeatable and very marginal effects, these effects are, you know, one-time and a little more impactful. So their costing is a little more efficient. Uh, Specifically here, I thought it was interesting to compare Memorial to Unity. I'm sorry, Memorial to Genius, which is the blue one? Do you know off the top of your head? It would make sense that it would be Genius. Memorial to Genius, which comes into play tap, produces a blue, and then you can pay four and a blue and tap and sacrifice it to draw two cards comparing that to the blue mythic that was just spoiled today which is either seven mana sorcery to draw cards equal to the number of cards in your hand plus one or a land that comes into play tapped once you pay through life it produces blue these are pretty similar to me in a lot of ways so we're looking at you know Memorial to Genius, again, like the man lands in castles and stuff, you get both. You get to play a land early on, tap it for mana, and then later on when you run out of stuff to do, you can pay five mana, which is actually six mana because you're tapping the Memorial too, so it's really kind of like effectively six mana to draw two. Here, you either get a land or you get seven mana, draw up some number of cards, bare minimum you know, one, if, you, if you're hellbent and draw this card. If that's going to feel bad, you, you know people are going to have to do that, though. You're going you're gonna to draw Seagate Restoration uh, when you are hellbent and just pay seven mana to draw a single card. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's a very weird design. I don't know. I don't think I'm interested in it, to be honest. I, it's, I think it's a lot worse than the red and white one. Uh, for that reason I just said, honestly, like, I don't really want to have a lot of cards in my hand at the point in the right. game where I can cast seven mana spells. If, if, if I do, I feel like something has gone a little bit wrong. <laughs> or I'm really significantly winning because I haven't had to use my cards to, you know, stay ahead. So, uh, or to, like, keep it parity. So, yeah, this one is not as interesting to me. I feel like, you know, between this and Memorial to Genius, would I maybe have rather have Memorial to Genius? I, possibly. It's not, it's not completely out of the question. Another important point about the man lands and the memorial lands is that they are significantly worse top decks because they both come into play tapped so like celestial colonnade is a creature but you can't play it and then activate it and block the next turn right because it comes into play tapped so they're quite slow if you're playing late in the game where obviously the spells just happen immediately so there's a lot of like interesting little like knobs that are being turned here to try and balance these and make them make sense in comparison to other lands that have additional late game value the um, the deserts are another set of recent-ish lands that have this kind of value associated with them. 
so they're really similar, I think, to the... I keep typing dessert. Not dessert. I mean, <laughs> dessert not dessert. One day we'll get dessert lands. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different deserts, actually, between Amonkhet and Hour of Devastation, but the ones specifically I'm talking about are, again, the uncommon cycle from Hour of Devastation that also sacrifice either themselves or another desert to give you some value. And these ones, instead of coming into play tapped unless you pay three life, like the Mythics from this new set, uh, tapped for a generic mana unless you... Or tap for a colorless mana, rather, unless you pay to life to tap for the color of the appropriate kind. Um, so obviously the, the one that really stands out here is Ramanap Ruins was so good it had to be banned in standard, and that was just a land that either tapped for red and did damage to you, or, or a colorless mana, or you could pay for and sacrifice a desert to have it deal two damage to each opponent. How do you compare that to like one of these little double-faced cards, these like deserts that sacrifice themselves? Again, I think it's a pretty fair comparison. I think that maybe the difference is that, like, I think the the red one that deals damage, Remunap Ruins, is maybe the best comparison, because it's actually a proactive card. Like, it deals damage to your opponent, it'll get him dead. And a lot of these spells that are tacked to lands here are proactive spells. It's not just, okay, I'll be able to draw a card, an extra card, next turn by cycling this land. Um, It's actually putting creatures into play. And, you know, those what those utility lands let you do is run more lands in your aggro deck because you are less worried about getting flooded because if you get flooded, you just turn your lands into, you know, shocks to your opponent's face, which was very much the strategy of that particular standard deck. So, yeah, I mean, we saw Raman After Ruins get banned, right? That card was really, really good and constructed. And does it have a place in cube? This, is, this brings up an interesting question, which has been sort of cropping up around the discussion about these modal double face cards. Some people feel that these cards are not worth the slot in their cube, which is a people have been saying that. I don't know exactly what it means. I imagine different people would mean different things when they say it, but what, I, what I'm gathering from people is that if you expect mostly to play it as a land that has some like marginal upside, right? Like, I love that white spell, but even if we're being optimistic, let's say that you get to cast the seven mana side, you know, 10% of the time you draw it, right? Uh, it is still 90% of the time just a land that, you know, maybe deals three to you. So I think there's a lot of people that, like, the idea of playing what is kind of just a utility land that happens to be dressed up like a fancy double-faced card sorcery is not very appealing. It feels like it's a, it's a waste of a slot in their cube where they could have given that to an interesting, powerful effect, and instead they gave it to just a land if it has some marginal upside sometimes. And right. I don't so know like, if I... It's, t- it's taking up that space to only actually be used maybe not even every draft. Yeah, I think that is the uh, I think that is the the sort of criticism of these cards. The people that some people that aren't running them just feel like yeah, you're you're wasting a precious slot in the cube. You only get to choose you know 360 or however big your cube is of these cards that you're going to get to draft, and this is one less slot you have now available for a powerful finisher or uh, you know whatever else you wanted to put in the cube. And I I don't I don't subscribe to that perspective because to me like. This is a powerful finisher. It's a powerful finisher, but it has the huge advantage of being able to be played as a land, and I don't, you know, kind of see it as a downside. But when I look at Ramanap Ruins, I can more understand why people might feel that way, because it's like, well, this is just basically, like, any red deck will play this very happily, right? Like, I'll jam at my red deck, but, like, am I going to take it highly? No. Is it going to pull me into red? No. Is it, like, flexible? No. It just, like, does this thing, which is, you know, maybe a case for considering those lands a little bit differently. I, I happen to think that, like, Ramanap Ruins is just, it, it's the most powerful of the Desert Cycle from Our Devastation, though I want to give a shout-out to Ifnir Deadlands, which I don't think people are giving enough respect. That is the black one, which uh, you can pay four mana and sacrifice it to put two minus one, minus one counters on a creature um, at sorcery yeah. speed. 
That was definitely um, the best one in Limited, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think that one is probably pretty respectable here. Like, again, if we imagine this as a modal double-faced card where the front end is a four-mana sorcery that puts two minus one minus one counters on a creature, and the back is a tapped black land that, you know, you can pay three to untap. The card sounds okay. So, like, I feel like if your Deadlands is, is not too far behind. But it just happens that, like, these cards are pretty narrow in their effect, even though they are flexible in the fact that they are both lands and, you know, spell-like effects. Whereas the... The fact that these other cards have such a big impact on the game, they're splashy mythics that do something like really substantial, just means that they have more flexibility, right? Like I, I would, I guess the best way to put it is I would not put Ramanap Ruins in like a blue-red control deck probably because the life loss is going to be somewhat significant over the course of a game, and the chances that my blue-red control deck is going to lose unless I deal exactly two more damage to them, you know, right now is so slim, right? Like, the way that deck wins is by taking some damage early and then, you know, stabilizing and then turning the corner and winning with a lot of card advantage and, you know, board presence and just kind of overwhelming their opponent. So it's not likely to be in a situation where they're, like, you're in a tight race back and forth with your opponent or, you know, you're, you know, kind of at parity and sitting in a board stall. Like, those things are just not likely to happen where you want this, like, reach from a, from a land. So it's really just kind of an aggro card. On the flip side, I will very happily put that seven mana sorcery in my aggro deck because it feels like it is less of a cost of inclusion because aggro doesn't care as much about life loss as control does. And, you know, I feel like the games where you get to seven mana with an aggro deck, which are definitely the non-ideal games, you're getting flooded if you're at seven mana with your aggro deck. I still feel like that happens way more often than the games where the two damage from Ramanap Ruins actually is the difference maker in a win or loss when you're in some control deck. So my question then is, if you're putting it in your aggressive deck, is it taking a land slot or a spell slot? Because if you're saying seven mana, uh, you know, recover from a game that you basically had lost, um, you really need to draw eight lands to make it work. Yeah, you do. Which, I mean, it, it happens, right? Like, Yeah, it does. <laughs> I, uh, I wish it didn't, but it, it does definitely happen sometimes. And, you know, some aggro decks end up with Skull Clamp, and you just draw half your deck, and but it doesn't matter because you just keep drawing a bunch of little tiny aggro creatures and your opponent's on like green mid-range and they have a bunch of like planeswalkers or whatever and like in that situation i want to be able to draw into my seven or eight mana sorcery that just puts two four four flyers into play because that will actually get me out of that situation so yeah i don't know it's it's funny i, I am definitely reevaluating all of these old utility lands now that i am basically imagining how would i evaluate this differently if i just thought of it as a modal double face card instead of a utility land because wow. why are you saying well like that I'm sorry, I said, "Wow! Look at look at the look at the way this has uh, created a new thought technology." Well, it does. It's an important thought technology. Do you have? We talked about Barbarian Ring on this podcast before, Anthony. Do you have cards? I was going to say. I think I might have asked you when we talked about it, but do you have cards that are in this sort of category of cards that you would like to put in your cube decks, but don't feel like you can fit in your cube itself? Uh, I don't really feel that way too strongly. I mean, if anything, similar like utility lands that are in monocolor that I've, I've actually included some in the past and ended up cutting them. But I think there are ways to mitigate that. Like if you still want to be able to be able to include more uh, lands in your cube, you could just say like, well, let's just draft 18 card packs and just include a whole bunch of these. Like I think there are ways to solve it. So uh, yeah. it's not something that I feel like too much pressure against. I've seen more and more people doing 16 card packs lately. It seems like that is kind of uh, spreading a bit. Yeah. which is interesting. I don't know. I mean, three extra cards in your pool is a big difference, I think, at the end of the day. All right. What, um, what sport of week are you most excited about, Anthony? If I've not bored you enough with... Oh, I'm sorry. One last thing on the modal double-face cards. There is... Do you want to talk one... about this little, little green guy? 
two things left on three things left i have one more thing there is one card which has been printed in the past which is almost exactly a modal double face card it just was printed with different technology and this is the card rustic clacken clacken do you know this card anthony uh no what is a clacken I, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. I, I think that word means like small town or farm or something. Uh, it is from Morning Tide, and it is a white producing land that comes into play tapped unless you reveal a Kithkin from your hand. And this land has I've Reinforce so 1. And what Reinforce 1 is, is you can pay 1 and a white and discard it to put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on target creature. So that's just a mold double face card right there. It's uh, a land that sometimes comes into play tapped, sometimes doesn't, and. Or it's a two-mana, put a plus and plus one counter on a creature at instant speed, which is, I don't know, like, that's a thing. So, like, that card, ooh, maybe. But you have to have a Kithkin in your hand. To have it come into play untapped, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can you can cast it or whatever, uh, or play it as land. You just can't... Oh, isn't there a modal double face card that is very similar to that effect that we saw? Let me see here. That could be a takedown. Uh, so, one of the ones, are you maybe thinking of the McKinney Stampede, which is an overrun, sorcery speed overrun, or a tapped planes... I could be thinking about that. What, what do you think of McKinney Stampede? So these are the two. Uh, I'll I'll just be upfront. Like I did not, and probably still don't expect to put any of these in my own cube. But the two that are the most tempting uh, are the McKinney Stampede and the Balagad Recovery. I really like both of these because they are effects that are relevant late in the game specifically. So if you draw it early, it's a land. If you draw it late, you get some good value out of it. And even more, like I. I think that this kind of like overrun effect in white is pretty powerful in my lower powered cube environment but i think if i just put like the instant speed all creatures get plus two plus one people would just not draft it because it is uh, a little bit high in variance because sometimes it just doesn't do anything so these are the two that are most tempting to me another thing that i that occurred to me that i think is pretty interesting is i also have the bounce lands in my cube so the idea of yeah. playing this early playing a bounce land picking it up and then being able to cast it actually adds some like interesting lines to uh the games, especially even if you have a card like Knight of the Reliquary, now you can go fetch up your bounce land specifically, yeah. so you can pick up and reactivate one of these cards. You can fetch up your seven mana sorcery that makes yeah. four angels. I mean, this is the kind of gameplay that you love, right? You can fetch it up, and then you can sacrifice another land, and then go get your bounce land to put the thing back in your hand. It's just a, you know... Just never stop. Self-contained, that value. self-contained little combo. It's funny, I originally thought, when we saw this mechanic, like earlier this week, that... I would be most excited about those situational cards like you described, because to your point, an overrun as a card alone, while oftentimes game-winning, is also sometimes a totally dead card, and so it is oftentimes not an appealing pick. But this really highlights how much different this mechanic is than just cycling is to me, because as these cards have come out, I actually have found myself much more excited about like the generically powerful cards that just always do something, right? As opposed to the situational ones, because cycling you're just saying like ah give me another pacifist like i don't want this now like like you're you're deciding kind of in the context of the game do i want to replace this with a new card or do i want to cast this card and here you're never replacing it with a new card you're just you can always have a land so it's like the difference is like you know you could still be like late game top decking and have no creatures in play and then you draw this like mckinney stampede and you're like well i wish this was actually just had cycling because now i just want to draw another card because this is still dead to me and the um I don't know it just it feels very different to me because of the fact that you have this guaranteed effect the fact that it's guaranteed makes me want not situational cards and instead just want you know whatever generic stuff like I'm I'm closer to liking the four three for five than I am to liking the McKinney Stampede I think because it is still like 
a situational card on both sides, and there can be late-game moments where you both have an empty board and you don't need more lands, and it still can be a dead card. Yeah, the one specifically I'm thinking about uh, that I was considering for my own cube when it was spoiled was is Sajiri Shelter, which is either a tapped white land or an instant that gives a creature protection from the color of your choice till end of turn for two yeah. mana, for one and a white, which is a perfect example of, like, that effect is very situational. Oftentimes it is irrelevant, but when it is relevant, it can have an incredibly high ceiling. It can be two mana win the game because you make your creature unblockable. It can be two mana fizzle their big removal spell. It can be two mana, you know, uh, eat a creature in combat. Uh, you know, it can be it can be a lot of different things for a, a very small mana investment. But the more I looked at it, the more I was like, you know, like what deck wants this? Like uh, I would I would want this effect again in like an aggro or mid range deck, and I don't know. It's like. When the decision point is, if this spell is not relevant to me, let's say I have no board or, you know, my opponent is uh, not playing some strategy where protection is going to matter, right? They're, they're playing, like, uh, just a mono-black control with board wipes and minus one, minus one or something and not, like, target removal, then what am I going to do? Just, like, now I have an extra land and I'm happy? Like, no, I'm not happy to have an extra land if I, if I don't want land, right? Like, what I want is right. another card. Uh, and I still st- am stuck with either a situational card or a card that doesn't do anything. I mean, a land might not be what I need at that point. So I, I guess it's right. like, in the early game, if you need a land, you can always play these as lands. And, you know, I expect some of them will be most often played as lands and put in land slots. And then in the late game, I just still don't want situational cards that do nothing. Like, if this is Jerry Shelter, which is a card that was one and a white, give a creature protection, or cycle for generic mana, I think it'd be a much better card than it is right now, where it can either be a land or this shelter. Yeah, I think I agree. And I think that this card in particular, um, the others that I mentioned are appealing because you draw them late in the game and they are relevant. And uh, early in the game, you just say, like, well, it's turn one, I'm going to play my tap land, wherever it least affects my, uh, least detrimentally affects my ability to just cast my spells out. Whereas what I would want to do as Sajiri Shelter is say, like, I'm going to plan to use this proactively if my opponent tries to interfere during combat on my turn. Right. And keep it up until I need another land drop and then just play it out. But because it turn- comes into play tapped, you don't necessarily actually have that flexibility. Right. So I, th- I think that creates kind of an awkward tension, which uh, puts me off of it a bit. Yeah, meanwhile, like, holding this up for a little while until it becomes more advantageous to cycle it and draw into another card and, like, try and find more action or try and find whatever you need... Like, right. that would feel like a thing where it was actually giving me choices. I don't actually feel like I have as many choices with Sheltered being that I just have to play it as a tapped land or save this sort of protection spell. Which, it's funny, like, you know, for all the comparisons we've drawn, like, I still don't really know how to evaluate this. I'm having trouble, like, articulating why I think it's different than other modal cards. But, you know, that Shelter, that Sejiri Shelter is never anything but a land or a protection spell, right? A card with cycling could be anything, and that's part of the power of a card with cycling. The last one I want to talk about... Anthony, is Tangled Florahedron. This which, card is so weird. It's so cute, In terms first of, of all. what... It's adorable. I spent a lot of time looking at this, both because it's adorable, both the illustration on both sides is great, but also it's just like... So, one side is a tapped green land, the other side is a mana dork, so it's a two mana, one one, that taps for green, and that's... That's so confusing. <laughs> well, it, it, it is um, kind because of mindful. If you, if you don't have your third land, you just always play this as a land, and it makes no difference, except now it's not a creature, so it's like, in most cases, it's probably better to have a land than a creature, right? So it just makes you think about, is this trade-off of spending more mana to have four mana on turn three actually worth uh, worth doing, versus just playing it as a land? Yeah. What it, Tempo what it really... or value? What do you want? What it really does in a sort of kind of concise package is, I think, highlight 
why mana dorks, as they get more expensive, get like exponentially less valuable. Because, right, right. Because, you know, a turn one mana dork, like a one CMC mana dork, played very early in the game, you are all but guaranteed to have your next land drop unless something went horribly wrong or you took a really greedy hand. So, like, if you're playing a Llanowar Elf on turn one, you are going to have three mana on turn two, unless they bolt your bird, right? As soon as you go to two mana, it's like, all right, well, now I gotta get to two mana, and then I also have to have my third land drop. And, you know, the chances of hitting your third land drop are significantly less than hitting your second land drop, and those chances just continue to go down until, you know, the chances of hitting your sixth land drop on time are, like, all but impossible, right? Like, only if you're flooding out, basically. Like, it is very rare to hit your sixth land drop on turn six. So what this is really highlighting is just what you said, right? Like, the fact that both sides of this card do the exact same thing, you can either pay two mana so it doesn't count as a land drop for the turn and it's fragile to removal, or you can just play it as a land, is kind of, it's like a weird, it's like, a, it's like psyching me out. It's, it's, it's yeah. like, I feel like there should be a, a right answer, and it's just like, uh, it's just like looking at me, and like, yeah, we both do the same thing. Like, what are you going to do? Which one are you going to choose? <laughs> I mean, so what if this card was just written differently, and it was uh, ETB tapped land, but it had an ability that just said, pay two mana, put me into play. I, mean, I think I would, like, I would like that more, I think. Yeah, for sure, because it'd be, you know, it's two mana, it's like a rampant growth, basically, uh, right. instead of a two mana 1-1 one, one that taps for green, and rampant growth is a lot better than a 1-1 one, one that taps for green because of the aforementioned removal situation, so that would be better, I think, but it wouldn't be that much better, and it, it, it again, highlights how strange and weird this card is, because it just, yeah, it does the same thing on both sides. <laughs> Why? Same thing. Both sides. Same ding-dang thing. This is another one that I don't think is very good, and it's, it, it's, because the sides are so similar and they're so close in cost, I mean, zero mana versus two mana is not a huge difference. It's certainly compared to zero mana versus seven mana well, with the other mythics we've been talking about. It highlights why I don't think, like, okay, let's just, like, again, draw this comparison. If this was a two mana, one one that tapped for green and had cycling generic mana, slam dunk. I am all about that, 100%. Totally. Like, that card seems great because I really want it early in the game and I really don't want to draw it late. And so when I do draw it late, I just cycle it away and I draw something else. And this is not as good to me, because here it's like, if I have my first two lands, and I'm presented on turn two with the possibility of casting this, I either have a four drop, end my third land, in which case I definitely cast it, or I don't have my third land, in which case I just play it out as a land. And right. either way, like it's, it's, it's a very, very, very marginal upside on a two mana one one that taps for green, which is that... You know, if you're get stuck on lands, you, you can you can keep you can keep like you know one in every hundred hands you otherwise couldn't keep because now this is a tap land on turn one, whereas before right. you would have been keeping a one lander. Now you're keeping a two lander, you know, which is a little better. But that that upside is very marginal, I think, and I, I'm not very high on a two mana one one that just taps for green in my own environment. So this was the card that made me the first one I saw that I was like, okay, I might actually put some of these double face cards in my cube. But after thinking about it more, and I, and I can't say I wasn't influenced by the uh, adorable picture. It's um, very adorable. But after thinking about it more, even though it, like my, my, in my environment I do support a two-mana mana dork, and they, they still are pretty good, and this seemed like it just gives you a little bit more flexibility than that, but it doesn't give you the same kind of flexibility as uh, some of the other cards we talked about where they have like flexibility that they do things early and late in the game. It just sort of gives you flexibility in how your hand plays out, but in a way that's actually pretty prescriptive. So yeah, I think yeah. I'm actually not that excited about it. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, I'm still not having trouble like articulating <laughs> it perfectly. Why is it so weird? Well, I mean, it's not to like you know talk about how great Magic is, but you know, it's it's amazing to me that you and I've been playing Magic for five years now or whatever, 
and thinking about it with far too much of our waking hours and spending a lot of time talking about it and like you know just occupying a lot of our sort of mental space and yet they come out with a new mechanic that is like so marginally different than a couple of other pre-existing mechanics all the ones we reviewed but i still don't know how to evaluate it or how to articulate what's different about it like this is so much different than cycling one so much more different than i thought it was that it's like kind of weird and it's also so much more different than having utility lands in your deck that it's getting it's hard for me to process but but yeah this is a good sort of tidy case study for why i think many of these cards are much worse than they would be if they just had cycling one attached to them whereas some of them i think were a lot better than if they had cycling one like i'm trying to think if i would be excited about you know the seven mana white card that had cycling one instead and there i'm not as excited about it because there i'm basically saying i'm almost never going to cast this card so i'm just basically taxing my draw step at that point and saying i have to like you know dig a little bit deeper to find that land what if it Whereas, had cycling cycling pay three life Ooh, i'm into it then sign me up <laughs> <laughs> cycling pay three life sounds really good and that's actually you know that's a good point it is kind of like that because you know it doesn't come into play tapped if you pay three life so but yeah, it's like there, you know, I, I like that that particular effect is has land on the back because that's what I want most of the time. And that, that's what allows me to justify putting it in a full-on land slot, whereas I'm not going to put a generic cycler in a full-on land slot. I will, you know, once I have three generic cyclers or one mana cantrips, I will shave a land, and I'll continue to do that as I get more. But, you know, that's only worth a third of a land, whereas this is worth a full land in my deck, 100%. Like, Amiria's Call is a land in my deck, and sometimes it will have this insane upside. So it's like, it's it's the way that I'm evaluating these effects with lands on the back is just way different than I expected. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to be way different when I start playing with them and casting them and realizing how they actually play out. It's definitely going to be an interesting new twist of just trying to figure out how do you actually build your mana base in this format. I guess not, because we don't actually get to lay out our cards in paper anymore, but we can dream. I'm, I'm buying a box. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to right, be let's doing do it. Let's play sealed. some sealed. We'll be doing some sealed. Well, right, Tangled tangled Florahedron, you are wonderful. I look forward to playing you in Limited, but that is it. Yeah, it's cute. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so, it, it'd, be, it'd be totally fine in your cube. Like, it would be viable, and I think... Oh, it would be fine. So I, I have a, like, a bigger concern maybe... uh, about these flip cards, which is just the, the like, legibility of them. So I think it's going to be yeah. not an issue at all in Limited, because, you know, the set has a couple mechanics. You're going to be aware that this is there. You're, you'll look for it. But I think if I put just, like, a Riverside Pathway or this Tangled Florhedron in my cube and it was, like, one of one to five uh, instances of this mechanic, I, I think a new drafter would just completely miss this little tiny symbol in the, in the bottom left and, and not understand the actual value of the card. So for that reason, I just feel like it, the amount of... small amount of flexibility it adds over another two-mana uh, dork is, is just not worth that extra complexity for me. Specifically that, like, comprehension complexity. Is that a thing? No, for sure. I mean, I think in my cube, I have come to kind of enjoy the fact that it's, like, a little bit of a museum of so many different kinds of effects that cards have. But it is 100% more intimidating and difficult to parse for somebody coming to the cube for the first time. I mean, God forbid if they're, like, newer to Magic and haven't seen these effects before ever because they started playing after the effect was printed. Like, that makes it much harder. And so it's definitely a cost. Yeah. I mean, we, we have to I, play I don't with mostly that's... experienced players, so like I, I'm not as worried about that. But I totally get people that want to avoid just. I don't want to have a single double face card in my cube because right. it's you know just a, a headache. Some people really just don't like double face cards at all because it requires people to like pull cards out of sleeves and you know yeah, just the logistics of them. It. 
Yeah, so and I, I to, to be too. clear, I don't think it's actually an issue. Like, I think if I put, you know, one of the, like, flip lands, which I think are maybe the most difficult to parse the pathways, I think that it would come up almost never that someone would actually be confused and understand it. But thinking about the, the player that is completely new, has never seen this before, I think it's still worth considering because it, it does add a little bit of cognitive load even to the more experienced players. So I always want to place a, a, a pretty high, high bar on um, what totally new things that are adding more complexity uh, are doing and if they're actually adding something positive to the environment. Yeah, that's a, that's a classic lesson from, uh, I mean, you and I work in uh, in user experience design, which is not oh, yeah. so different from game design. And one of the sort of, one of the, what are the drums we're always beating is that if it's better for like less enfranchised or less invested people, then it's also better for people even that are super invested, right? So you know, the main audience you'd be worried about with like putting a bunch of various effects in your cube is people that would get intimidated by it or didn't know the the sort of, you know, rules of those effects. But it's also just better for experienced players where they don't have to like look at the board state and go, okay, now how did that work again? And it's just like a little more low, even if you are very familiar with the cards. So yeah, a very serious concern. That's how we get Oxo Good Grips. And now my kitchen drawer looks like a big box of dildos. Don't get me started on Oxo. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be so mad at OXO if so many people didn't love it so much, you know? I mean, they're exactly the, the use case that you're describing, though. What do you mean? That, that when they designed their products, they said, right. well, we're not going to design for your mean, mean target audience. We're going to design for the people that are at the extremes. I think that's how it started, but now I just think they make they everything all away. bulbous and rubber and they don't care. Yeah, I'm not crazy about it. Uh, I'm not either. I, 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 what I want my utensils in my kitchen to do is look distinct and feel distinct, you know? Huh. Like, I, I don't want my interface with all utensils to be completely catered to my, my hands because uh, just because they're like, oh, this is the shape of most human hands. So, like, no matter what you're touching, whether it's a bicycle or a kitchen knife or a you know, computer mouse, it all feels the same. I want them all to feel different. I want them to have, like, a uniqueness to them, a, a personality. Just like your magic cards. Just like my magic cards. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I want to thank DJ James Nasty for producing our music on our podcast. It's great, and you should check him out on the internet by Googling DJ James Nasty. And Anthony, I think we have a, a special crack-a-pack to end this episode, right? Based on what we teased last episode? Oh, yeah. Let's crack this pack. And we're just, uh, it's, so a, yeah. it's a collector's booster, right? This is a Theros Beyond Death collector's booster. And I'm also now, just I can't to keep all these a... products straight. Which one is collector's boosters again? That's the one that's a full booster that has like a bunch of it's... extra rares and foils and uncommons and stuff? These these are wild. So it's it's a full booster, but there's like just all foils and four rares and who knows what's going on. It's not um, the ones. But... What are the ones that only have like four cards in them? What are those? Those are promo packs, okay, I think. Good. We knows? got a full booster, though. So, uh, yeah, crack booster. it for us, Anthony. Let's, uh, let's right. see what you get. Now, what it's is, what is the thing you most want to open in this pack right now, Anthony? What uh, are you hoping to Theros see? Theros Beyond Death. Was that Oko? I think I actually do not own an Oko yet, so... And you're trying to collect all of the Borderless Planeswalkers, right? Uh, yes, but I am covered on Theros Beyond Death. Oh, my God. You open these things, and they're just so shiny. Wow. You want me to read all these horrible comments? No, don't read everything. Just read the, uh, give us, give us the highlights, you know? Let us, let's go along for the ride. Uh, we got a foil swamp. That's nice. And a foil plains. Elspeth's nightmare. Foil island. We got a bunch of lands. Oh my God. This is so sad. So the other problem with these is they do include some rares from the, uh, planeswalker decks. So we've got an Ashiox forerunner. What does it do? That's like the four mana (laughs) creature that like, what does it do? What does it do? You don't even know what this card does. This this card goes and like searches your library for the like 
12 right. mana Ashiok that was printed only in the Planeswalker deck. Right, it goes and gets it, which, I, I mean, I like that they put those cards in the Planeswalker decks because it lets people oh, for play sure. their Planeswalkers more often. Yeah, 5 mana 3-3 three, three with Flash that goes and gets stuff. Art's kind of cool, though. That's probably pretty foil. Yeah. All right, we got an Extended Art Tectonic Giant. Cool. Ooh, that one's good. Neat. A foil Labyrinth of Scophos. I was Neat. disappointed by something about that card. What was, the, what was it that disappointed me about that card? Uh, it can't target your own creatures. Yeah, bummer. Yeah. So I had for a while uh, Mazevith in my cube, specifically because there are a fair number of cards that you know you might want to attack with to get some attack trigger and then pull it out of combat to save it. But turned out to be just a little bit too oppressive. So I have Labyrinth in there now, and it, it's serviceable. Uh, all right, next up we have a alt art Cal- Caliphe, beloved of the sea. Those were some good alt arts. I liked them. Yeah, I, I gotta say, like I'm those. not in love with the alt arts from Zendikar, the like travel poster inspired ones. They're they're not. Yeah, I, I'm completely with you. But you know, it's important that they do things far from the beaten path because some of the things will be for you. Exactly. I, I will always encourage wizards taking risks, especially with their art direction, because what I want is just more weird stuff. And I, I'm okay if I hate 80% of it, as long as I get 20% that I like, which is definitely, I'm, I think I'm hitting more often than that, so I will accept it. All right, last card is Foil, Altart, NX, Hardened of the Forge. Hardened in That's the Forge. a good magic card. Is that in yeah. your cube? Uh, it's not. It's, it's on the fence. It's definitely viable. It'll be very good. Uh, and we also get decks. a foil tentacle token. Ooh, for, for that's, your dear that Kraken, might be which you the, cut from your cube. That might be the best thing. This pack was kind of a stinker. <laughs> this is why we don't open packs outside of drafts. But you yeah. can't open a collector's booster in a draft. It's you really, nice. you really can't. You could bring yeah. one to a wacky draft and have a good time. Be generous, to everybody. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Uh, mostly, I just wanted to give a shout out to our local game store, No Land Beyond, that has a new thing where you can subscribe and get a monthly uh, box of all kinds of magic products and craft cocktails. And yeah, I got some of these collector boosters, which is, you know, anything in these times to get a little bit of novelty in my life is uh, a huge value. Yeah, if you're in the, uh, you know, greater Baltimore, D.C. area, check out No Land Beyond. And also, email us and let's play Cube whenever this stupid pandemic's over. Oh, yeah. If you're listening to this and you're in the D.C. area, Maryland area, why aren't you uh, playing Cuba this whole time?